Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace be upon you and the mercy and blessings of Allah. I am Abdullah and I am joined as always by my wonderful friend Seamus. Seamus, how's it going? Not terribly, uh, but the path, I have been a bit sick for the past few days, which has not been fun. And it's been sick in a very, very strange way. We'll get to that. But how have you been, my friend? Okay, that sounds kind of ominous. Um, it's not ominous. It's just it's just weird more than anything. Interesting. Well, um, I have been okay. I haven't had work for most of this week, so I've been able to just relax more, um, play some games, and just kind of chill. Mm. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it last week but no man's sky which is a very well-known game just came out on an official mac version and because i have a mac and i haven't played that game in a very long time i was like oh i should probably check it out and so macs are not built for gaming they're built for productivity and so they're built in a way where most games aren't going to play very well on them but whatever they did they made it specifically so they ported it over from the PC version, I think, to Mac. And whatever time and effort they took, they made it run flawlessly. I'm on, like, maximum settings, 2K quality, and I'm getting, like, over 100 frames per second. So it's really cool. And being in space, in just the wilderness of space, is really chilling and scary, but really immersive and cool at the same time. So I've been playing some of that. Um, but day before yesterday, I think, maybe it was yesterday, I don't remember, all the days kind of mixed together, um, my grandfather had to go to the hospital, because he has another chest infection, uh-oh, no he doesn't, it turns out that infection is COVID, so, the good news, I guess that is a chest infection in a way, kind of, yeah, but, um, it, uh, it's better than last time because last time when they brought him into the hospital and they put him on oxygen, his level was like 40 or something. Like he was almost oh dead. God. Yeah, it was bad. But this time we had, because thankfully, because we had the oxygen machine at home, he wasn't able to be stable above 70, but it was hovering around 70. So it could have been a lot worse when he got there. Um, so that at least Good. is fortunate. They seem that is. hopeful Sorry. because... No problem. They seem hopeful because now that, like last time, it was some mysterious chest infection. They didn't know. It just magically went. Um, this time, because it's COVID, they're a little more hopeful that they'll be able to solve it and, like, done and dusted, he'll be out soon. So, hopefully, God willing, inshallah, that's how it goes. But you never know. Maybe it's going to get worse. So, that has been something that has happened more recently. Um, but other than that, I've just been kind of half dreading, but also looking forward to kind of the summer because it's already hot. Um, in the UK last year, we had the hottest day in the UK, which was like 34.2 degrees or something. It's not That's even hot. summer yet, and it was already 30 today. So oh, no. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to summer, but at the same time I am because, you know, summer is just a kind of time where things just feel different. Going on your everyday walk just feels a little 
cheerier in summer. You know, it just feels a little better. Although, you know, coming home all sweaty and horrible and burning hot isn't really pleasant, but just going on a summer stroll is um, nice and doing things that you normally do, but in the summer, it can be a little nicer of an experience. So I'm looking forward to it, but I'm also dreading it because it's going to be incredibly hot. So I have no love for summer at all. I hate summer. I just understand hate it so much. Um, I just don't like being hot. And we and I'm lucky enough to have air conditioning. But I like going outside and I can't do that when it's summer because I burn so easily and it's hot. It's hard to breathe because summers here are very hot and very humid. Well, maybe not very hot, but they are pretty hot and very humid. But very thankfully, it's actually been very cool so far this year. Like last time last year around may and june it was super hot you know getting to 30 degrees celsius quite often but it's been very mild so far which i'm very happy with of course it's going to get hotter probably going to get hotter as the year goes on but thankfully at least um spring late spring has been very nice which i will take lovely but good luck with your summer in a land that is too backwards to have air conditioning yeah right <laughs> well it's not so much as backwards it's that things have changed too fast for you to change the infrastructure yeah um, but you know it's oh man i remember like um when i was like 15 it was a decently hot summer and i was like man it's not gonna get much worse than this <laughs> oops boy were you wrong <laughs> yeah and then that's the thing. All my friends are mocking me because obviously I can handle like during the heat wave we had last year, I was working like 10 hours a day or something on my computer. Like I can handle it. It just wasn't particularly pleasant. But then all my friends are going to be mocking me because when I move to somewhere like Dubai or something, that's just going to be like an everyday occurrence. That's like the lowest it's going to get. So... The one advantage to living in a desert is it's 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 not humid, which helps. Mm. Um, that genuinely that is so it's so much nicer to be. I'd much rather be at like thirty degrees and very low humidity than like twenty five, and very high humidity. Yeah. That's a perfectly good trade off, in my opinion. I agree. So back to what you said about me sounding ominous with what I've been sick. It's it's not ominous. Basically, what's happened is um, I I ha started having these really weird pains in my feet. Like my feet were just very sore, um, and like walking just start like, you know, I just you know walk out like a little bit around my house, not even outside, and I'd felt like I'd walked like for several miles. I'm like, what's going on? This is not good. Um, and it starts getting worse and worse and worse. And then I look at my feet. I'm like, oh my god, they're really swollen. <laughs> this is weird. Um, and then the next day, I started just feeling really tired. So I'm like, okay, I have some sort of weird infection going on. Um, I called my rheumatologist. And he's like, yeah, we're going to get you to into an appointment as soon as possible. And as soon as possible is Tuesday. Um, which is actually sooner than I'm ex expecting. And he said, so while you're waiting, I'm going to give you some prednisone, some like you know, the, the medical steroids, I guess, to see if that helps with the swelling. And thankfully, it has helped with the swelling a lot. And one thing about steroids, about prednisone, is you feel super hyper 
on them. So I have, I felt none of, uh, no fatigue at all since I've been on them. Wonderful. Um, they give you so much energy, energy in a way that's not particularly pleasant, but I'll take it when I'm, when the alternative is feeling like death. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I don't think it's been fixed. It's more just the medicine is doing its job for now. Um, but yeah, so that's what I've been feeling sick about is just. It's it's just so weird. There's nothing I did, or at least I can remember that what should have triggered feet swelling. Like, yeah, it's a very peculiar. And the, like the temperatures even have haven't changed. They've been very stable around 22 degrees almost every day. It's been more humid, so and there's been some weird rain and stuff. But again, the maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. It's mm. just very weird. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully. You'll be able to go to that appointment and get it all fixed. That is strange. Yeah, it's it's not even like it's super horrible. It's just it's very strange. And the downside is like I haven't been able to do like go for walks and go. I'd walk my dog for a pretty long walk. I think it's like three, four kilometers. Maybe not that long, but it's decent for me. As someone who's not very fit. Mm-hmm. Um Every day, and I love that. It's usually one of the highlights of my day. I just haven't been able to do that, even on the prednisone, because my feet don't hurt that much now, but they're still very stiff. Like they don't move properly, and I'm kind of like walk like a penguin. Um, you know, when you, ha- I don't know if you've ever seen those videos where they put like the like the doggy slippers on dogs, like the dog oh, boots. Oh yeah, that's kind of how I walk right now. <laughs> well, at least um, you know the. At least it doesn't hurt. Yeah, at least the the medicine is doing its thing, even if it's only temporary, because it could be a lot yeah. worse. It could be. It could be. Yeah. But that's mostly what I've been doing, or not doing what I've been experiencing, and while I've been experiencing that, I've not been doing much of anything. Mm. Um, reading some stuff, and that's kind of it. Um, yeah, I suppose there's not really that much you can do. <laughs> yeah, when you can't really walk, there's not a whole lot you can do. Yeah, there's a hard um, limit in place. Yeah. Um, do you want to get to our segments now? I don't have anything else to say. If sure. You have anything else to say, say? Since I think you went first last time, I'll go first this time. Okay. So, we are on... I think we have done five out of the ten great nullifiers of Islam. So, today... I will go through the remaining five as well as the conditions and exemptions of these uh, nullifiers applying to somebody. The sixth nullifier, mocking the religion of Allah. Whoever mocks anything from the religion of Allah, whether that be verses of the Quran, his messenger, or even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, his reward for that deed is disbelief. Evidence is the following two verses of the Quran, chapter 9, verses 65 to 66. If you question them, they will certainly say, we were only talking idly and joking around. Say, was it Allah, his revelations, and his messenger that you ridiculed? Make no excuses. You have lost faith after your belief. If we pardon a group of you, i.e. those who repent, we will punish others for their wickedness. Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di, may Allah have mercy on him, said, 
The foundation of Islam is built upon veneration of Allah and respect for his religion and his messengers. And so, any mockery thereof is contrary to this principle and is in sharp contrast to it. Sheikh uh, bin Baz, may Allah have mercy on him, said, All the scholars are unanimously agreed that uh, if the Muslim reviles or criticizes the religion or reviles or criticizes the messenger uh, or ridicules him, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, then he is an apostate and a disbeliever who may be executed and his wealth seized. When it comes to the mocking of a thing from Islam, such as the obligation of the beard or the women wearing hijab, mocking it because it's from the religion is disbelief. However, if you're specifically mocking how it looks on a person separate from the religion itself, then it's only a sin. You're not actually committing a disbelief. If a believer is in the company of a group of people who are mocking the religion, there are two cases that may um, happen. If he is pleased with their mockery, meaning he likes what he hears, he laughs at it, whatever, then he has committed disbelief through them. If he is, uh, if he is displeased by and hates their mockery, he is sinful for being in their company. However, it is not disbelief, as can be seen in the following verses of the Qur'an. Chapter 4, verse 140. He has already revealed to you, in the book, that when you hear Allah's revelation being denied or ridiculed, then do not sit in that company unless they engage in a different topic, or else you will be like them. Surely Allah will gather the hypocrites and disbelievers together in hell. And chapter 6, verse 68. And when you come across those who ridicule our revelations, do not sit with them unless they engage in a different topic. Should Satan make you forget, then once you remember, do not continue to sit with the wrongdoing people. The seventh nullifier is sihir, and this is magic. Magic is of two types. Asarf brings enmity or hatred between people. And I'm going to completely butcher the... Arabic, because it has that letter uh, that I that I showed you. You know the the ah. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, I, it's not the easiest. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. I know mechanically what's going on there, but it's really hard to do. Yeah, so al arf. We'll call it al arf because I can't say the ein. Al arf. I can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> that type I'm of trying, magic. But I can't. Yeah, it's, it's tough, I'm telling you. Um, Al-Arf brings love between people. However, that does not make it permissible, because any form of magic is disbelief. Whoever practices sihir or approves of its practice, they are, they are a disbeliever, as can be seen in the following verse of the Qur'an. Now, this is quite a long verse, um, but... You know, in my documents, I kind of bolded the two lines which are most applicable, but for, for it to make sense, I'm going to have to read the whole thing. This is uh, chapter 2, verse 102. They instead follow the magic promoted by the devils. Uh, they instead followed the magic promoted by the devils during the reign of Solomon. Never did Solomon disbelieve, rather the devils disbelieved. They taught magic to the people, along with what had been revealed to the two angels, Harut and Marut in Babylon. 
The two angels never taught anyone without saying, We are only a test for you, so do not abandon your faith. Yet the people learned magic, and it caused a rift, even between husband and wife. Although their magic could not harm anyone except by Allah's will, they learned what harmed them and did not benefit them, although they already knew that whoever buys into magic would have no share in the hereafter. Miserable indeed was the price for which they sold their souls, if only they knew. Now, an important note here is that there is not only two types of magic, as in Asarf and Al-Arf, but also there are two different forms of magic taking place. Some of it requires enlisting the help of shayateen, which are like uh, minor devils, I guess would be the translation. And the only way that you can enlist them is by doing something for them, like a sacrifice or something. And obviously that is constituting um, disbelief. However, if you're doing a type of magic which isn't like that, then I believe it's only a very, 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 very major sin, but because you haven't done something contrary to your believing in the oneness of God, then it's not disbelief. The eighth nullifier is aiding polytheists against Muslims. Aiding polytheists in their efforts against the Muslims is disbelief or kufr, which brings one out of the fold of Islam, as was warned in the following verse of the Quran. Chapter 5, verse 51. And if anyone, and if any amongst you takes one of them as friends, protectors, helpers, or so on, then surely he has become one of them. Verily, Allah guides not those people who are the polytheists and worshippers or those who are unjust. What is meant by this is that if a Muslim helps, supports, and aids the disbelievers against Muslims, and he forms an alliance with their party instead of the party of the believers. In his commentary on the verse in which Allah, may he be exalted, says, Let not the believers take the disbelievers as supporters, helpers, etc., instead of the believers, and whoever uh, does that will never be helped in Allah by any way. Uh, at Tabari, may Allah have mercy on him, said, Do not, O believers, take the disbelievers as a source of help and support, or ally yourselves with them in support of their religion, supporting them against the Muslims instead of the believers, and telling them about the Muslims' weak points, for whoever does that will never be helped by Allah in any way. What is meant is that he has devoured Allah and Allah has... Oh, he has disavowed Allah and Allah has disavowed him because of his apostasy from his religion and becoming a disbeliever. Except if you fear a danger from them. This is from Surah Al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 28. This means that unless you are under their rule and you feel they may punish or kill you in some way, therefore you're allowed to pay lip service um, to giving them support while in your heart concealing enmity towards them. The ninth nullifier is leaving the, gui the guidance of Allah. Whoever believes it permissible to go against the Sharia, which Allah has revealed through his messenger, is going against the Quran and is a kafir, a disbeliever, because of it. The following um, verses of the Quran, as well as the Hadith, which I will mention, supports this. 
Whoever seeks a way other than Islam, it will never be accepted from them, and in the hereafter they will be among the losers. That is from chapter 3, verse 85. Chapter 9, verse 33 states, He is the one who has sent his messenger with true guidance and the religion of truth, making it prevail over all others, even to the dismay of the polytheists. And there is a Sahih Hadith from Sahih Muslim, uh, 153, which states, By him in whose hand is the life of Muhammad, he who amongst the community of Jews or Christians hears about me, but does not affirm his belief in that which I have been sent, and dies in this state of disbelief, he shall be but one of the denizens of hellfire. Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, may Allah have mercy on him, said, It is well known in Islam, and all the Muslims are unanimously agreed, that whoever thinks that any religion other than Islam is valid, or that following a set of laws other than the laws of Muhammad wasallam, blessings and peace of Allah be upon him, is acceptable as a disbeliever. This is like the disbelief of one who believes in part of the Qur'an and disbelieves in another part of the Qur'an. The tenth nullifier, as I'm going through here, by the way, I'm noticing I made a bunch of typos I'm going to have to fix. Uh, the tenth nullifier is turning away from Islam. The one who turns away from that which was brought by Allah's messenger, not acting upon, studying, nor caring for it, but rather leaving it altogether, is a kafir, a disbeliever. This can be seen in the following verses of the Qur'an. Chapter 3, verse 22. And who does more wrong than he who is reminded of the ayat, this meaning proofs, evidences, verses, lessons, signs, revelations, and so on, of his Lord, then he turns aside therefrom, verily we shall, ex we, verily we shall exact retribution from the criminals, disbelievers, polytheists, sinners, etc., Chapter 20, verse 124. But whoever turns away from my revelation, i.e. never believes in the Qur'an, nor acts upon its orders, etc., verily for him is a life of hardship, and we shall raise him up blind on the day of resurrection. Ibn al-Qa'im, may Allah have mercy on him, said, With regard to the disbelief of turning away, it means turning away from the messenger and ignoring him, neither believing him nor disbelieving him neither taking him as an ally nor taking him as an enemy and not paying attention to that which he has brought at all. Okay, the exemptions from the nullifiers. There are some exemptions and there are some things which are commonly thought to be... Um, that there's a couple of things which are commonly thought that they don't know, uh, they don't exempt you, but they do, as well as just some things to clarify. So, of course, he who does it intentionally, they are a disbeliever because of the conviction they had in their heart. The one who does it jokingly is still a disbeliever for mocking their religion, even if they, um, if if only their intention was to joke, then it still applies because the joke that they made was about their religion. He who does it out of unsubstantiated or unjustified fear is a disbeliever for doing it outside of certain necessity. And you will understand um, what I mean by that when I go over the first exemption. 
The one who does it from a genuine fear, with strong evidence that they will be harmed or punished if they do not do it. Meaning, to say, uh, like there's been these Hindus going around beating Muslims half to death and saying, if you don't say, like, you worship this cow or something, then we're going to kill you. If you're in such a position where you're 100% certain something bad will happen to you, then you are exempt from being a disbeliever by saying something like that. Um, so if they fear with strong evidence and certainty that they will be harmed or punished if they do not do an act, such as from a threat, then they are not a disbeliever for what they did. The second exemption is the jahil. This means ignorant people. They do it from a lack of knowledge or understanding, and so they are exempt until knowledge and understanding reaches them. If it has been clarified to them and they do it again, then they're a disbeliever. The third exemption is the one who does it out of a genuine mistake and does not mean what they say. They are excused. Evidence for this is in the following hadith, Sunan ibn Majah 2045. Verily, Allah has overlooked for my nation their honest mistakes, forgetfulness, and that which they are forced into doing. And the final exemption is one may be exempt if they acted upon tawil, which is interpretation. This, however, requires details. If his tawil, interpretation, was in the matters that are agreed, up agreed upon and known in the religion by necessity, then his interpretation is not a valid excuse in these issues. Such as, for example, if he was to make a sacrifice to other than Allah, based on his interpretation, this is a nullifier, because one of the basic rules in the Qur'an is that you don't do that. However, if he had an interpretation which led him astray in matters where there is disagreement from scholars, such as um, the issue of whoever does not issue takfir of the mushrikeen, and so he does not declare takfir on them, that's saying that they are disbelievers, um, on a group that has shirk due to an interpretation, then he does not disbelieve. For example, if he had a interpretation concerning the disbelief of the lay uh, rafida, then he is excused due to his interpretation and it's not considered a nullifier uh, until he is informed otherwise. There are conditions also for the nullifiers to apply, and these are kind of uh, connected with the exemptions. Condition number one, they must have knowledge of the nullifier. Condition number two, they must have reached Islamic maturity and are sane and as, uh, and as thus are, according, are accountable for their deeds. Condition number three, they must have done it with the intention of doing it. This meaning that, for example, they intended to worship something, worship something other than Allah and they didn't do this because someone had tricked them or they had made some kind of mistake. Uh, condition number four, they must have had free will in this matter and chosen to perform the nullifier because like I said, there are some situations in which it's life or death and you don't really have a choice. Um, and so the person who is forced doesn't have, uh, doesn't fall into disbelief. The nullifiers mentioned in this book are the most dangerous and common ones, as I said at the beginning. We are to use this knowledge to ensure that we ourselves do not fall into these nullifiers and warn others against them. We are not to use this knowledge to attack or judge others without an intimate understanding of their unique situation. Recall the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ shared at the beginning of these notes, which states, 
If a man says to his brother, O disbeliever, then surely one of them is such, i.e. a disbeliever, because the claim will either go to the one who he accused of it, or if he was incorrect in his accusation, it will fall upon him. This is in Bukhari 6103 and Sahih Muslim 60. Whoever falls into one of these nullifiers, in order to return to Islam, he must make tawbah, which is sincere repentance for what he did, and he has to take the shahada all over again, which is the declaration of faith. The end. That last clarification, you answered what I was going to ask, and that is how do you repent for one of these things? How do you come back? Wonderful. Um, so I guess I don't have any questions because you answered my question. Excellent. Okay. On to my segment? Yeah, sure. Okay, so this is a kind of different thing for what I've what I've usually done because I'm not writing I didn't write or prepare anything specifically about a specific piece of Christian theology more. I'm trying to clarify something about Protestant theology I disagree with mm-hmm. and why I disagree with it. And for understanding this, I am greatly indebted to this book, Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, by Andrew Stephen Damick, which is an Eastern Orthodox book, but as far as I'm aware, it, I'm 90% sure there's nothing in here that the Oriental Orthodox churches would disagree with. So I think I'm clear with using this Wonderful. as a source. And so it is about the idea of sola scriptura. And now sola scriptura is, is, in my opinion, it's the it's the base it's it's the linchpin for Protestant theology. It's where the Protestant movement rests its authority on, from the beginning and continuing to the modern day. And let's quote. And to start this, I'm quoting Martin Luther at his defense at Leipzig um, about his idea of sola scriptura. A simple layman armed with scriptures to be believed above a pope or a council without it. Neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. The problem with saying someone is without scripture is that it presumes scripture doesn't need to be interpreted. The more radical reformer Huldrich, Huldrich Hringli, um, used uh, with him, sola scriptura became even more extreme and that he believed it meant that scripture is the exclusive single source of all Christian doctrine and practice, and that anything outside of it, or not even outside of that, it's not explicitly affirmed in it, not in things that are explicitly denied, because we all disagree. None of us think we use things that are specifically denied in scripture. But anything outside of it, regardless of how much it can be reconciled with scripture, in his opinion, needed to be discarded, which is nonsense. Um, and the problem with, with sola scriptura is that with sola scriptura, almost any doctrine or practice can be, in quotes, proven, depending on how one interprets scripture. Why is this? Script, and that, that is because scripture is not a self-interpreting thing. It's, it's not a single article. It's not a single catechism that clearly explains Christian theology and practice. It's a collection of books on with various different topics and themes and different styles, different genres, written by many different authors across hundreds, if not thousands of years. 
Um, Protestants usually use uh, Sola Scriptura by saying that um, all Christian doctrine can be derived from Scripture by the plain text, which in their opinion is derived from using textual study, history, and reason. One of the biggest problems with Sola Scriptura is that it fails its own tests because it is self-referentially incoherent. Not only is the doctrine found nowhere in Scripture, but it is specifically rejected as there are multiple instances of New Testament authors quoting extra-biblical sources as authoritative. And in 2 Timothy, um, the author says that the church, not Scripture alone, is the pillar and ground of the, of the truth. As well, if everyone is, is judged to be an equal authority on Scripture, who or what has the authority to defend, to defend against heresy? The design of the Bible does not lend itself to being self-interpreting. There is no system, systematic catechism in the Bible. It is a collection of books of varying genres written by many different authors across hundreds of years. The Bible doesn't offer a practical guide for things such as how one should conduct a worship service. These are questions that the church had to answer, which is, of course, guided by the scripture. You know, there are, for example, in this case of... Um, of worship, you know, there's references to, you know, prayers being sung. Jesus gives us certain prayers to say and things like that, but ultimately it was up to the church to compile these things into the liturgies of the church that we have now. As well, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura is absent from the writings of the church fathers. So these are the, the Christian writers that came after the apostles starting around the second century AD continuing, depending on your definition, into the well into the medieval ages. Um, whether or not one views them as authoritative, it still begs the question that if the apostles believed in Sola Scriptura, which they couldn't have because the New Testament wasn't clearly formulated or even written during the lifetimes of many of them, their disciples and the following generations of Christians clearly didn't learn that this was important because the church fathers never talked about it. Christ gave his authority to the church, which, which used to write, compile, canonize, and interpret the Bible. So that was kind of my introductory statement, and I have more notes about what I'm going to say. So, Sola Scriptura, ultimately, it, it's, its problem is that it rejects the concept of authority of the church. Um, the pro like like I said, the problem with the, the believing that of, of Luther's quote in the beginning is that the Pope and the councils and the church were never without scripture. They had Bibles. And it's not that we like, you know, as someone who's going on into Orthodox, not that I believe that the Romans, the Roman Catholics didn't find error in some ways, but ultimately the authority of the Bible isn't derived from individuals interpreting it. It's derived from um, the church that created it, compiled it, and now interprets it. There's a structure there's in the church to interpret the Bible. There's the councils of the church. There's the writings of the church fathers. There's discussions between bishops. There are minor councils as well as the ecumenical councils. There are structures to interpret the Bible that are meant to guard against heresy. There's, you know, in the, and this, and it's immediately, and 
the reason Sola Scriptura is incoherent is ultimately seen by what happened to the Protestant movement. It didn't stay as one coherent Protestant movement. It's splintered immediately to the point now where we have hundreds of different denominations of Protestants and many Protestant churches. It's a common problem that, you know, especially in evangelical churches, that the theology is entirely reliant on the pastor. And when the pastor retires or dies or just, um, you know, leaves for whatever reason, often the new pastor has different ideas. And so implicitly, these churches don't reject authority because they still rely on the authority of their pastors and in certain confessional denominations of Protestants. These are Protestants who base a lot of their theology on confessions written, um, created by like um, what are essentially Protestant councils to write um, a defense of their faith. They are relying on the authority of these confessions, but ultimately these confessions aren't derived from the authority of the church because there's so many of them. They splintered immediately. And like, why is, and because they're being based on Sola Scriptura, why is that confession any more valid than the Oriental Orthodox churches or the Roman Catholic churches or whatever? Um, and so implicitly, a lot of Protestants believe that some institutions or individuals have, oops, <laughs> have more authority than others, but Sola Scriptura doesn't say that, you know? Sola Scriptura, again, makes every man his own pope, as the Catholics like to say. Mm -hmm. Um it individualizes something that should be a, a process that very explicitly has been and still is done historically through the church, the hierarchy of the church and its institutions and practices and guides on how to interpret scripture. That's largely what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Any questions? I wonder, do you think that there is any chance ever that there will be a time that comes when Protestants are like, we got it wrong. Well, there actually have been, the, at one point, the Anglicans and the Eastern Orthodox were pretty close to uniting. Really? Which is Anglicans were gen are generally less Protestant than most other Protestants. So in like the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, there was actually there are not union between them wasn't inconceivable. Um, but then the Anglicans, I think in the seventies, when well, the progress stopped when Russia became communist and the church started being persecuted in mm. Russia, and. And then in the 70s, the Anglicans started to ordain women, which just made the union impossible between them. So, ordain women to the priesthood. Um, so, it's not that there hasn't ever been some movements of unity between Protestants and um, other more historic dominations of Christianity. There has been occasional mass conversions, I think, of Protestants to the Eastern Orthodox Church, 
think there's this one denomination that basically just did what you said and said, got it wrong, and en masse converted to the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church. Wow. But largely, I don't see that happening in large droves. There's a reason these things are forgotten, because they're fairly minor in the history of Protestantism. Mm. So I'm not hopeful about that. I am much more hopeful about union between the more historic denominations, the Oriental Orthodox Churches and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, that is not, I don't think that's inconceivable. It's a lot of the reason it hasn't happened is bureaucracy. There was mm. a confession in um, the 90s that sort of said that um, Oriental Orthodox Christology, what we talked about last time, and Eastern Orthodox Chalcedonian Christology were compatible, but it was rejected by the monks of Mount Athos on the Eastern Orthodox side, who, well, they're a small group of monks, they have a lot of respect and authority, and they weren't happy with that at all. And some conservatives in the Oriental Orthodox Church, especially the Ethiopians, are generally considered being the most conservative in the Oriental Orthodox Churches. And there was a joint statement by Pope John Paul II and um, the Syriac Patriarch at the time, and then in the 1980s, I think, um, again affirming that Chalcedonian Christology and Oriental Orthodox Christology are compatible. But the problem with uniting the Oriental Orthodox Churches and the Roman Catholic Churches is there is more, there are more barriers that have to be overcome than there are with, um, than there are with the Eastern Orthodox Churches. Because really, the only disagreement there, with the or the main disagreement, there are other minor things, but the biggest disagreement is. The Christology and pretty much everything else could be worked out. A lot of it is cultural practices that are different. Like the Eastern Orthodox churches use leavened bread in the Eucharist. Some of the Oriental Orthodox churches, though not all of them, like the Armenians, um, use unleavened bread in the Eucharist, which for whatever reason the, or the Eastern Orthodox church think is an impediment to union for reasons I don't understand. Mm. And I don't get it, but apparently that's a big deal for them. Um, it really just feels like they're trying to find a reason yeah, right. to disagree with each other at that point. Because, like, again, some of the, like, the Oriental Orthodox churches, some of them use leavened bread, some of them use unleavened bread. It doesn't, as far as I'm aware, there's not been any major disagreements about it. But um, the Ortho Eastern Orthodox disagree, so. Yeah, that's, but uh, I, I'm not. I don't think it's inconceivable that there is union between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Oriental Orthodox Church, or even I, if the Roman Catholics unite with an Eastern Christian branch, I think it's actually more likely to be the Oriental Orthodox Church because Oriental Orthodox churches are generally much, much more open and happy for inter-Christian dialogue and for actually saying, you know, even you know. Let's try for union. We may, we probably have things that we can't overcome, but let's talk it out. Let's understand each other's position, at least. They're much more open to ecumenism, um, ecumenism than the Eastern Orthodox churches, which are a lot more insular, um, generally. Hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, that's, um, I, I just wonder, you know, surely 
at some point in time, even if it's the end days, there's got to be some time where Protestants are like, hmm, at least a moment of reflection, if not confession. You know, in some schools of Protestantism, even like very firmly Protestant, there has firmly Protestant schools. Like starting in the 21st century, there has been in like more academic Protestant circles, there has been more willingness to look critically at some of the Protestant doctrines. Like there's at least some important scholars who have started to reanalyze, maybe not abandon, but reanalyze what sola fide, like salvation by faith alone means to them and try and, because for a long time, the Protestant definition of it was very simplistic um mm-hmm. and some have started to try and look back and say okay maybe our positions aren't that different um so yeah so i mean i i hope so we we can one can hope yeah um, definitely dare to dream i guess um and it's not like god wants us to be bickering amongst each other likely you know, not that's def that's definitely not what he wants i don't think um, yeah so yeah Interesting. Any other questions? Not really. That was kind of the main one. All right, then. I don't have anything else to say. Me either. I just find it fascinating that, like like you said, like the entire foundation is based on that, but it's so flimsy. It's Yeah, it's the worst. Like, Sola Scriptura is the worst thing that's ever happened to Christianity because it's, like, for, it's, like, the... the the thing that's just so ironic, tragic irony to me, is it's literally not only not only not found in the Bible, it's like explicitly denied by the Bible. And just five minutes of common sense can makes it clear that this isn't a position that someone in the early church could have held. It's literally impossible. The Bible didn't exist. Yeah. Um, but everything is based on it. It's just so sad. I wonder. Like I don't know, know whether I should laugh or cry about it. Yeah, right. I um, wonder how often it is that the everyday average Protestant actually reads the Bible like properly, like actually like reads it and understands it as opposed to just like skimming and being like, oh, that was truly inspirational. I don't know. Because surely, if it was a regular occurrence that they actually reflected upon and tried to understand it, surely there wouldn't be so many Protestants. I hope so. (laughs) I I hope hope most of them look at it more critically, but I don't think they do. Um, And again, that's the problem with the Bible. It's not a a self-interpreting thing. It's not something that's particularly easy to interpret. Um... And with anything, if you're going into it with a preconceived set of notions, it's very easy to make things, especially some even at least very slightly vague. Um, you, you can make it say anything you want it to if you're going in with the right mindsets. Yeah. You know, as like as long as you're like like if you just think about how many different interpretations there are for whatever just think of a movie how many interpretations are of the meaning of that movie and because it's not explicitly said um there's a lot of interpretations one can get out of a movie some 
you know, are clearly nonsense, but people, when they're going into it with their preconceived ideas, it makes sense to them. Um, and a lot of the Bible is not specifically telling doctrine. A lot of it is stories. Some of it's generally just poetry. Others are history. Um, some of it's largely like prophecy and things like that. Um, it's not like, it's, it's not, a lot of it's not, just, most of it even isn't, is, is not just people teaching. Most of it's not that. Um, you know, like in the, in the Gospels, Jesus teaches, but of equal importance to what, but first of all, he teaches in parables, which are not the easiest thing to understand. And a lot of what he, and a lot of like what the authors are showing his message by is through actions and things like that. It's through what he does often, not through what he says, which is not as easy to interpret as he just saying, you know, pray seven times a day in your corner facing east. Um, make sure you wash your hands and face before you pray. It's, it's not that usually. I mean, there are things like that. Like he says, you know, pray in secret, you know, pray like standing usually pray the Lord's prayer, but it's not explicit like seven times a day at six o'clock, nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock, four o'clock, or five o'clock, six o'clock, you know, pray these, this specific prayer. It's not that, you know, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that you guys have to wash your hands and face before you pray. That's what that's what cops do. Yeah, wow. at least the cops. I think the Syriacs might do the same thing. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, we have wudu, and so part of wudu you wash your hands first, and then you wash your mouth, and nose, and then face, and then your arms, and then you wipe your head back and forth, and then mm. the feet. Yeah. I think you're also supposed to wash your feet, if I'm not wrong. That's um, interesting. Yeah, so. Yeah, a lot of the Oriental Orthodox churches use a lot of the more common, like, Old Testament practices that a lot of the other churches kind of abandoned, like, things like that, you know, like the ritual purification and, and washing and cleaning yourself and things like that, and, you know, praying in East Cops, almost always pray East, I think. I mean, I'm so bad with directions and numbers that I might be saying the wrong thing because I am so, I, I just mix them up in my head a lot. So don't take that as a gospel because I'm always the person who's saying my left is my right and my right is my left and my north is my east and south or whatever. So don't take okay. that as a gospel, but I sure. think it's praying east because I'm not going to say it because I'm afraid I'm going to embarrass myself by getting my directions wrong. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Is there? Um, do you know if any of the denominations have a? Because we have wudu, which is for minor impurity, and then we have hosun, which is for major impurity, like sexual intercourse or something. So the major impurity is fully covering the body in water and cleaning out your privates, whereas the minor is, like I said, the hands and then. So the, the minor kind of serves as a way to like cleanse the minorly cleansing the body, but it's more like doing the ritual action of cleansing the soul because mm. what we're taught, for example, is when we're washing the hands, any hands we did with our sins are falling off. 
And so mm. it's like a spiritual and physical cleansing. So do you know of any denominations which have a minor, but then a major impurity for different things? I don't. They, they might exist, but I, I'm not sure. Interesting. Um, I'll, I'll look into it after this, actually, because this is interesting to me. Um, yeah. It, it, definitely the cops do the, the washing. I think the, I think the Syriacs, and almost certainly the Ethiopians, because the Ethiopians are, use the Old Testament even more than the cops. Mm-hmm. Like, the Ethiopians actually have, like, the largest biblical canon. Like, they have more books in their Bible than anyone else. Wow. Like, they have the Book of Enoch in their canon and things like that. It just goes back to what we were saying. Like, not everyone agrees on what exactly is the Bible. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's know? one of you my know? main and things. For, and like, Yeah, like, the cops and the Ethiopians not only are in communion, but until the 50s were part of, like, do not, like, like hierarchically the same church. But they use different different scriptures, um, and it never caused any problems because, again, they they shared the same theology, and they still largely agreed that you know these books are of value. It's just I think the distinction is which one is to be read aloud at church or can be read aloud at church. Hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's always interesting because um, so my one of my main arguments against christianity is the thing that confused me because as i started looking into christianity i realized like there's different canons like how is that possible and so nowadays for some reason it's some kind of tiktok trend of people saying like ah the quran has i think there's seven they're called kiraat and i forget the exact explanation as to how they came about but they all complement each other and they all mean the same things it's just, I think they're different, like dialectal versions of the, um, the verbal Quran, which was given to different tribes so that more people could understand Islam. And so people are like, ah, the Quran has seven different versions. They all mean different things. It's like, guys, sort out your canon and then you can talk about other religions. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like that's just a difference. And I think that's just a difference in, in, viewpoint between like christian like historic christianity i guess and um islam where it just where it's like the bible informs your truth but it just what the basically what scripture is i think is different like for you isn't isn't the quran like the verbatim word of god right Mm -hmm. i'm not correct where it's not that in christianity it's inspired by god and it's the one of the found probably the biggest foundation for doctrine, but ultimately the, the teachings of the church are derived from oral tradition, from the Bible, from extra biblical sources that the church as a body interprets. Hmm. Um, so it's just a difference in opinion that's dogma because um, what we mentioned earlier, the quote in second Timothy, the church is the ground and pillar of the truth. And I think that's a difference. It's not so much the Bible is the pillar of the truth, which it is in a way, in a long way, it, it is. But it's it's the Bible interpreted through the church, hmm. um, and, because, and because you know, like, it's hard to imagine Islam existing without the Quran, where Christianity for a very long time existed without a Bible, without you know, a single biblical canon. There was the Old Testament. There were writings that people read and stuff, but you know, it's 
it's capable of existing without the Bible in a way, you know, hmm. I th- in a way, you know, so yeah. That's interesting. Like, it, like if the Bible's just, all Bibles were just, like, were just disappeared one day for whatever reason, just magically disappeared, like the church would still be able to function. Yeah. So in Islam, our function would be the same, but for different reasons, because the Quran is the words of God. The thing we have physically written down is called the Mus'haf. It's just a copy. And so if all the, there is a prophecy that when the day of resurrection is near, all of the Mus'hafs will turn blank. And people are like, oh my goodness, the Quran's going to disappear. It's like, guys, hold on. These are separate things. The Quran for 1,400 years has been passed down orally and memorized by millions of people around the world. If all of our books went like that, one of the requirements of being a scholar is that you have it fully memorized. You're fine. Like everything for us would be uh, totally okay. But if we lost the actual, like if everyone's mind went blank at the same time, then we're done for because the whole concept of Islam is, you know, there's the five pillars. If we lost knowledge of those pillars, then we're not Muslim. Mm -hmm. So it's quite important. Yeah, it's the same thing. Like if people's minds went blank, yes, the church would be done for. Yeah. Well, you could probably reconstruct if the writings of the church fathers still existed, you could probably reconstruct things okay. But um, the thing yeah. that I think separates Islam from other religions in that way is we have the belief that everyone has something called fitra, and fitra is like your natural inclinations. And so people's natural inclination um, is monotheism. And so providing, like, if my, if my mind went blank right now and no Muslims existed on earth, technically I would still be a Muslim as long as I didn't start worshiping Jesus or something. Like, if I stayed on my same course for good and didn't turn left or right in any direction, then I would probably die as a Muslim. Yeah, it's, that like, I remember vaguely reading that, like, Islam believes that everyone's born a Muslim or something like that? Like you're at birth, you're yeah, Muslim or something kind like of. So we have the fitra, which is the natural inclination. However, there is a hadith which mentions something along the lines of whenever we chose to be born, we are granted birth as a Muslim. And so whenever someone converts to Islam from Christianity, if they were raised Christian, they actually reverted back to Islam because that's the natural state. However, from what I've seen, there are heavily conflicting opinions on the validity of that hadith. And so I prefer okay. I prefer to say converted because I was born in the middle of a Christian country into a Christian family, mm-hmm. and then I was brought to Islam. It's kind of like my own miracle. But then mm-hmm. people are like, oh, no, you were born a Muslim. It's fine. It's like hey, that kind of removes the specialty of it, doesn't it? I mean, if we're all born <laughs> Muslims, then why are so many disbelievers? Like it's, it brings it more into a, like a, nature versus nurture discussion because then you're going to get into all the statistics of oh well if we're all born muslim why have there been more disbelievers than muslims in history it's like why would you to have such a belief is to belittle islam and make it seem like it's a lower quality religion or something like it just doesn't make sense uh we have i see we have a fitra yeah even non-muslims have a fitra we have the born inclination of monotheism and things like this but it's not necessarily like um 
Like there are some people who believe if you were to have a child and you were to give birth to them and they were completely untouched by culture, by religion forever, and they never did any formal form of worship, they would die as a Muslim. Not because they were born as a Muslim necessarily, but because they were born with their natural fitrah and it was never distracted, they died with the beliefs mm. of a Muslim. And so okay, that makes sense. That makes more sense to me than oh yes, yeah, I was born as a Muslim sense. and then I turned Christian and then I went back to Islam and that makes more sense if you're being like natural inclination to monotheism yeah. rather than like you're born with like I don't know like the Muslim doctrine. Exactly, in your head. it's just so unusual. And the thing is, I respect the opinions of the scholars who say it, but I also respect the ones who say it doesn't, and I think that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Are I, you I done? think. I think that was a good episode. I think that was a very good episode. Wonderful. So Andy, we can see my face this time, my very disheveled face. At least it's prettier than mine. So it's not. It is. Okay. So thank you guys for watching the sixth episode of the Seekers of God podcast. Slap a like on the video if you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts in the comments down below. Uh, maybe you want to say something on Sola Scripture. Maybe you want to say something on the 10 Nullifies of Islam. Or maybe you want to tell us we suck. Either way, leave a comment. It'll help us out. Do it. Yeah. I dare you. <laughs> uh, thank you all for watching. May the peace be upon you and the blessings and mercy of Allah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Goodbye.